welcome to this week's Inside Education, the podcast for educators interested in teaching. With me, Sean Delaney. I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator, and my book about teaching is called Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have. You're especially welcome if you're a new listener to Inside Education. And I know there are a lot of new listeners out there because the hits and downloads have increased substantially in the last month or so. It's great to have you along as part of the Inside Education community. This is a special episode of Inside Education because it is the 400th episode of the podcast. When Inside Education began back in 2009, I never thought it would continue for 400 episodes, but it just kind of creeps up on you. It means that there's a rich back catalogue, though, of episodes on all kinds of topics about teaching, which you can explore by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. You can email me by writing to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. To mark the 400th episode of Inside Education, I am delighted to have as a guest on this week's programme the co-host of my favourite podcast, Speak Up Storytelling, a podcast about storytelling that my guest co-presents with his wife, Alicia. I have been listening to that podcast for about a year and a half, and I've learned a huge amount about storytelling just from listening to it. My guest, Matthew Dix, is also the author of Storyworthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. And that's a book I have in hard copy and in audio version. However, as well as being an award-winning storyteller and podcaster, Matthew Dix is an elementary school teacher in Connecticut in the United States. In his podcast, he sometimes refers to his teaching, and I thought it would be interesting to bring him on Inside Education to talk about storytelling, but especially to talk about his approach to teaching. You'll really like this week's podcast if you like storytelling and believe in its potential for teaching. You'll like it if you're interested in teaching drama and literature. Unlike most of us who become teachers, Matthew Dix himself hated school as a student and regularly found himself in detention. We'll hear about how that has shaped his approach to teaching. If, as a teacher, you assign jobs or posts of responsibility to your students, you'll enjoy a special treat on this week's podcast when you can sit back and relax while Matthew Dix tells a story about one of his experiences of appointing a personal assistant from among his students. Although I have mentioned that Matthew Dix is a storyteller, a podcast presenter and a teacher, That's not even half of what he does. So to begin our conversation, I asked Matthew Dix how he introduces himself to a new colleague who joins the teaching staff of his school. That is a great question. The problem really is when I play golf more than anything, because I meet a new person, you know, there'll be three of us playing and then a fourth comes in. And invariably by the third hole, the person says, what do you do for a living? And my answer is always, I'm an elementary school teacher, because that's sort of the job that requires me to be in a certain place at a certain time every day, or it did before all of this happened. But my friends always immediately jump in and say, he also writes novels, and he performs on stage, he has a wedding DJ company, he's actually a minister, you know, he does inspirational speeches. So it's such a weird question for me, because... It's sort of a branching tree of things that I do. Essentially, what I always tell people is all of my jobs come down to one singular thing, which is I use words, whether on the page or on the stage, to either convey information or to move someone emotionally or entertain them. And that's what I do, whether I'm working with 10-year-olds or 80-year-olds. You often talk about the time when you were a manager in McDonald's. Uh, when you were young, and and it looked as if that might actually be your career. So how did it come about that you made the transition to becoming a teacher from that initial work in McDonald's? (laughs) Well, I had always wanted to be a teacher. You know, when I was in high school, I used to tell people I want to write for a living and teach for pleasure. You know, so I wanted to sort of like make my money writing and be able to teach without anyone sort of bossing me around. But, you know, I got kicked out of my house when I was 18 and I became very poor and in trouble with the law for reasons that were not really my fault. And I sort of started to believe that even though I felt like there was potential in me, that I wasn't going to achieve that potential. And honestly, it was a night in McDonald's. It was, it was a night after midnight. I was counting some money at the safe when some men came into my building. They broke the windows and came in with guns and put me on the ground and there was a box in the safe that I couldn't open. It contained most of the money that we had in the safe that night. 
And there was a sign on the box that said, you know, manager does not have key and they didn't believe me. And so they put a gun to my head and, you know, they said they would count back from three and then they would shoot me if I didn't open the box. And they counted back from three and pulled the trigger and there was no bullet in the gun. And they did that repeatedly to me. And I discovered lying on that floor that night, all the fear and anger that I had when they came into my building and they put me on the ground and did all the things they did to me. They beat me before they, you know, before they put the gun to my head. All of that was, was fear and anger. But as soon as he started counting back from three, all of that disappeared and all it was was regret. It was just, I'm a 22-year-old kid and I'm about to die on a greasy tile floor and I've done nothing with my life. And I discovered that regret is the worst feeling of all. And I sort of became committed that night, not sort of, <laughs> I became committed that night to the idea that I really can't waste a moment. And every single opportunity that I see, I must grab. And every opportunity that I can't see that I want, I must make for myself. And so it's not surprising that after that night, I eventually was put on trial for a crime I did not commit. I was found not guilty. And as soon as that was over, I found my way into college. And, you know, I, I worked incredibly hard for a long period of time to get through college while working full time. I stayed with McDonald's. I continued to manage McDonald's restaurants because they were flexible with my hours. And it turned out I was really good at that job. And eventually I got to where I wanted to be. But that was it. It was a turning point in my life for me. So it was that insight into regret that motivated you to apply for college? It was the insight that pushed me to do anything I could to make that dream come true. So, you know, I actually didn't have to apply to college. I ended up in community college initially, which is sort of the, the avenue that you can take where anyone can go to that college. And it actually ended up being the best education I ever received. From community college, I got full scholarships to two other universities where I, where I got my English degree and my teaching degree. But the two and a half years that I spent at a community college with you know, people basically 18 to 80 again, you know, all of the people who either couldn't make it to college or the ones who had aged out of college and were coming back for retraining or just because they were interested in learning new things. That was the best education I ever got. The teachers there were extraordinary and the diversity in the classrooms was second to none. So it was me finally realizing that I just have to make this happen instead of waiting for it. You know, waiting for the opportunity was sort of what I was doing and sort of making the excuse that I'm managing McDonald's, I'm making okay money, maybe I can become a teacher at McDonald's. That was, that was how I sort of changed my dream. I said, well, I'll become a person who teaches McDonald's manager someday. So I was sort of manipulating my dream to fit my reality instead of changing my reality, you know, to chase the dream I really had. Having made that decision and that transition into teaching, what do you like most and what do you like least about teaching? <laughs> well, I like kids the best. That is the best thing about teaching. There is something really extraordinary about spending time with human beings who are filled with directness and openness, you know, and humor and, and love for where they are and what they're doing. In terms of what I don't like about teaching, I mean, I managed to avoid a lot of what I don't like, thankfully now, because I'm 21 years into the job and, you know, I, I was a teacher of the year for our, for our district and a finalist for the state. I sort of have established myself in a position where no matter what happens, they kind of can't get rid of me at this point. So I, I have some freedom that most teachers don't either access or are afforded. But, you know, I don't like... I don't like the fact that a lot of the curricular decisions are made by people who lack the expertise in the areas that these decisions are being made in. So for example, writing is, I mean, my, my big area and all of the curriculum that is designed in writing is designed by people who are not actually writers. So they sort of just imagine what writers do and they design curriculum based upon what they imagine writers to do and think and feel and be, and none of it is actually accurate. And so it's not surprising to me that kids graduate from high school and college hating writing 
And it's not surprising to me that most adults don't actually write other than a grocery list or an email to an aunt. No one really sits down and writes creatively. And it's not, it's a, it's a failure of curriculum and it's a failure of understanding what writers need and want in order to be successful. So how do you teach writing? Well, I teach my students in the same way that my editors treat me. So, you know, I always say there's four things that every writer needs. Uh, they need time, which means we're all going to be quiet and we're actually going to write in the classroom, which is the most valuable thing you can do for writers, you know, and no one under, really understands that. I had a principal come in one day with his iPad to observe me, you know, one of these surprise observations. And everyone in the room was writing and I was sitting there writing myself. And he sat next to me and said, so what's going on? And I said, oh, they're all writing. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm writing, but I'm looking at Joey because Joey won't write unless I stare at the back of his head. So I'm staring at Joey and doing some writing myself, but everybody else is good. And he said, well, I'll come back later because so, I got to observe you and I want to be able to write something down. I said, nothing will be better than what is happening right now. You should write down in your iPad that there were 20 kids in the class, 19 were, were fully engaged on their own, and one was engaged because the teacher was staring at the back of his head. That's the best thing that could ever happen. So it's time, it's choice. So you have to give kids choice over what they're gonna write. So you create assignments that have a wide variety of opportunities, which is what every writer wants. No, no editor tells me what book to write. I propose the book and hopefully they take it. And if they don't, I move on to another editor or, no, or another idea that I have. They need audience which is to say when they're done writing, what are they gonna do with it? Sort of, are you going to listen to it? You know, the advice I give to parents all the time is when your child finishes writing something, you should immediately stop and listen to it. And that means the best thing you could ever do is if you had like pork chops on the griddle and your child said, I finished a story, can I read it to you? You should purposefully let the pork chops burn in order to demonstrate to your child that what you have just written is more important than anything else in the world, including dinner. And that would be so powerful to a kid to indicate the importance of what they're doing. But so often we, the parents take the piece of paper and they comment on handwriting and spelling, which is basically taking a knife and stabbing their child in the heart and causing them to never want to write again. So you have to have audience. And then you have to have purpose, which is why do we write? Do we write because teachers tell us to write? I hope not. You know, do we write because we can write letters to companies that we don't like? And in response, we can get gift cards from those companies as acts of apology, which is the way I hook kids into writing. You know, they'll come in and they'll say, I was at a restaurant last night, but the food was terrible. And I'll say, let's write a letter. Let's, sound, let's sit down and write a letter to that corporation and see how they respond. And then three weeks later, when they get a $50 gift card from that company and it comes to the school because it's, you know, addressed from the school to the, it's the greatest thing in the world. So whether it's that or it's writing letters to someone you like or writing a book or giving a kid a chance to write a comic book or publishing writing on the internet, whatever it is, you know, my writing career started, my first job was writing uh, term papers for my classmates in high school. I made $50 writing my classmates papers for them if it was untyped and $100 if it was typed. And I bought my first car with the money that I earned through the purpose of writing, which was I can write things and will pe people will pay me money for what I've made up in my head. That is extraordinary. That is actually the best reason to write. I essentially write to make my wife laugh so she will continue to love me and to earn money. Those are my two primary reasons. I have other reasons too, like I want to express myself. I want to create some permanence of myself in the world so that when I'm no longer here, I'm still kind of here. All of those things too, but Making my wife laugh and earning money are two of the primary reasons. But we never tell kids that. We tell them, write it because you have to write something else or we have to give you a grade. And that is not the way to inspire any kid to write. So if we go back to the audience and the child comes to you, whether you're a parent or a teacher, and they say, listen to what I've written or look at what I've written. And it's not good, as you said, to correct the punctuation or the, uh, the capital letters or whatever. But what is the most productive way you could respond to that child's writing? So I always say, don't look at it. And I, I adhere to the same rule. So I say, please read it to me, first of all. Because depending on what level of writer you're dealing with, all of the mistakes they make, sort of the missed words and the, 
the run-on sentences, they all disappear when a kid reads it because what they have on the paper is sort of their translation of their voice, whether it's grammatically correct or not. So I want to hear what their intent was. So I say, you read it to me. And then I dodge all of my pain over spelling or handwriting or punctuation because that comes later, including me. You know, the first chapter of every book I write is a disaster. It's filled with the red lines all over it from, you know, Microsoft Word. So they read it, and then I adhere to a three-to-one rule, which is I have to say three great things about this for every one sort of critique I make of it. So I have to find three things that I love about it. And then when I'm going to critique it, what I usually do is I ask a question. I frame my critique in the form of a question, which is questions like, what did you mean here? Or why did you make this decision? You know, why did you start at this point in your story? Or I see that you've chosen three reasons to support your argument. Which of those reasons do you think is the weakest of the three? You know, or which one do you think could use some more support? And so by asking questions to them, there's no accusation, there's no absolution. You know, in writing, it's, it's craft and art. And so I want them to be thinking about their writing, you know, which is actually another thing. I teach a workshop over the summer with international students at an all-girls school. And I'll never forget, I, I sent the kids off to write, and one of the girls said, is it okay if I think first? And I said, of course, why? And she said that she had a teacher who said, you have to think at the end of your pencil, which is if you're not writing, it, you're not like making any progress. And I told that girl, I said, if for the next 45 minutes, you just sit and genuinely think about what you want to write, but no word ever hits the page, but you really are thinking, I'm completely excited about what you're doing. And she was so happy to be free of that that insistence, that requirement that I must keep my pencil moving at all times. But that's what people think because they're not writers. They don't see writers as people who just sit and think for a while. You know, they, they can't grade that. They can't quantify it. And so like just that idea that you would limit a kid's thought because you can't put a grade to it is absurd. But those are the kinds of things that happen all the time. So, so I want my kids, when I'm giving feedback, I want them to go away and think about things and not necessarily take my idea. A lot of times I tell kids, I go, I don't know if this is right. This is kind of what I'm thinking, but go ask three other kids in the room now if my opinion is a good opinion. And I, I just want that idea that I'm going to offer ideas, but ultimately it's going to be your call. The, the reason we're talking today is, is, is to, to find out more about your teaching, but we can't escape the fact that I came across you through storytelling and the, the work, the fantastic work you've been doing there and uh, the education you've been providing for storytellers everywhere. But the kind of stories you tell are not folk tales, myths or legends or, you know, the kind of stories that we might often associate with school. How would you describe the kind of stories you tell? Well, the ones I tell on stage are personal stories. They are stories about real life experiences that I have had over the course of my life. You know, they tend to be the stories of my failures and my shame and my embarrassment because those tend to make for the best kinds of stories. Or they're stories where someone has taught me something that I did not know. A lot of times it's something a student has taught me that I did not know. So they tend to be stories like that, you know, that they are often humorous, but sometimes really tragically sad. I tell a story about that robbery I described to you, and there's nothing funny in that story whatsoever. It's just a, it's a tough story to tell. In fact, you know, I, I had 15 years of undiagnosed and untreated PTSD as a result of it, and I still struggle with it to this day. The fact that I was able to actually say those words to you is sort of astounding to me because it was a time when I could have never spoken about it. But those are the kinds of stories that I will tell. I, very vulnerable, very authentic stories on stage to whoever's willing to listen. And in developing ideas for stories, you came up with the concept or the, the idea of homework for life. Now, there's, uh, listeners who want to find out more about it can, can do so and they can Google it. But can you just give a, a dummy's guide to what homework for life is? Yeah, sure. I mean, I could talk about it, as you probably know, for a very long time. So I'll give you the very abbreviated version. It's essentially the idea that our days are filled with stories that we fail to recognize. What we essentially do is we take meaningful moments that we experience almost every day and we throw them away like they're trash. If we're lucky, we notice them. And even when we notice them, we then disregard them and allow them to disappear forever. 
And that is just an undeniable fact. All you have to do is ask yourself sort of, what did you do in the 26th year of your life? And quite often, no one can remember a single thing they did in the 26th year of their life. Even though that year was filled with beautiful and meaningful things, we just don't allow ourselves to either notice these moments that we have, and even if we notice them, we don't capture them in some way. So homework for life is the idea that we have to do that in order to find stories and create some meaning in our life where so many times we don't think there is meaning. So often we think that this was just another ordinary day where I'm here to tell you every day is extraordinary and you just don't see it. And I'm not special. Like thousands of people all over the world have done homework for life. I was in a meeting last night with eight people. They call themselves the Homework for Life Club in Miami. And I jumped into a Zoom meeting with them because they invited me and they're a verifiable proof of it. They said it has changed their lives too. But essentially what you do is at the end of every day, I ask myself the question. I say, what is the most story-worthy moment of my day? What is the moment that makes today different than every other day? Even if there is no real story-worthy moment, I force myself to find the thing that is the most story-worthy amongst all of the boring things that happen. Essentially, if I was forced to stand on a stage and tell a story about something that happened today, even if there's nothing really to tell, what would I choose? And then I write it down. I don't write the whole thing down because that's crazy. That's a journalist and a memoir. You know, those are people, they're very special, but they're not for me. I treat it like flossing. If you're going to brush your teeth and floss, you're going to do homework for life. So for me, it's in an Excel spreadsheet. You know, two columns, there's a date column, and then I stretch that B column across the screen. That limits the amount of writing I can do. And I think that's really important because I want this to become a habit, not a chore. So just like brushing your teeth is a habit, really not a chore, it's something you can do in two minutes, homework for life is the same thing. You ask yourself, what's the most story-worthy moment of the day, and you write it down. My goal was, at the end of every month, maybe I'll find one new story. Wouldn't that be great? What happens instead, and it happens for everyone, is you develop this lens for storytelling, where you suddenly see stories lying throughout your life, moments of meaning, really. Even if you have no intention of ever telling a story, even if you're mute and you can't tell stories, just the idea that you suddenly find meaning in your life, like moments that are precious, where someone says something to you and it moves your heart, or you see something that's just kind of hilarious, you know, or you... you Here's something that changes your mind in some fundamental way. These are all the things I see all the time now that I used to miss all the time through homework for life. It takes time though. It takes, you know, it takes weeks or months to develop that lens. You have to commit to that idea. But what I'll tell you is it's changed the lives of, of thousands, if not more people. You know, I hear from people every single day, including this morning. I received my first email about homework for life this morning because I tell people if you do it for 100 consecutive days, send me an email and I'll send you something back. I got my first email this morning. Like I can open it every day. I get at least one. And oftentimes I get many from people all over the world telling me it actually works. So, you know, someone named Abraham who is from the UK wrote to me this morning. And this person, like a lot of them, this person actually shared his homework for life with me. Uh, they share their 100 days, which I think is crazy because mine contains some deeply personal moments that I would not want to share with anyone. But people are willing to share it with me. So later on today, Abraham's going to get an email from me saying, congratulations for doing 100 days. And I would be surprised if he's the only person I hear from today. You teach fifth grade. So how do you apply or how do you use storytelling with your, with your class? Well, I teach them homework for life. I don't require it because it's not part of the curriculum and it's sort of a tricky thing to force kids to do, but I'll tell you about half my students do it. And the half that do it become fully committed and they absolutely love doing it. They start to develop that lens really quickly and they start to recognize, I think even before adults, they start to recognize like, wow, my school year is going by and I can't really remember anything from October. You know, and because I teach fifth grade, it's the last year of elementary school before they move on to middle school. It's a really seminal moment for them. They recognize how they're leaving a place that they've been in since they were five. And they can feel that weight of, I'm going to leave this place and I'm going to leave all these memories behind. No, you won't. Not if you do homework for life. You know, and another beautiful thing about homework for life is as you begin to do it, you crack open and all the stories from your past start to spill out and you recover all of these lost memories. So I teach the kids homework for life. And then I teach them some storytelling games that we play in class. The goal really is for them to find things to write about. So 
I have lots of purposes to do homework for life. And some people do it just because they want to nourish their soul, which is wonderful. But with kids, because they have a limited experience, you know, they just haven't lived as much. They tend to have a harder time finding things to write about. So homework for life and some of the other activities I have them do force them to examine their lives and to start to find things that they might want to write. Even if that is, you know, this week the kids were writing an essay on whether video games were good or not good, you know, the benefits of video games. Oftentimes we talk about inserting personal anecdotes into these, into these essays. You know, they tend to be appealing. They attach the audience to the writer, all of these things. Now kids are starting to create this tre treasure trove of personal anecdotes that they can use in many different ways throughout their writing and throughout their life. So uh, I teach it the same way I teach adults, just to a, to a simpler degree. And apart from using stories in their writing, do you get them to tell stories in the classroom? Yeah, they love doing it, yeah. You know, some, most of the sort of games I play in storytelling lower the stakes completely, you know? So we play improv storytelling games where essentially you're given a prompt and you have one minute to come up with a true story from your life. And kids love it because before sort of me and storytelling, whenever they write something, it's always a process. And at the end, it's expected that there'll be a certain degree of perfection, sort of, you know, that everything's going to be lovely and perfect and it's going to be on the page and it's going to get a grade. But if I lower the bar completely and I say, I'm going to give you a prompt, you have one minute to come up with a story from your life, you can tell it in anything from 20 seconds up to two minutes, suddenly everyone loves it because all of that pressure and weight that they feel about writing you know, right now because of what they've gone through before, it's all gone. And I can just stand up and talk about my life. And I say, yes. And I, I teach some craft with it. I, you know, when they're done, I give them a hint on how to make that story better next time. I say, take it home tonight and tell your parents, but do these two things and maybe it'll be better. But when you eliminate the stakes from kids, that's huge. And that works for adults too. I always tell people the problem with writing or the reason why I say that three to one ratio, compliment to critique, is because when a writer puts words on the page or when they speak it out loud as a storyteller, essentially you're putting yourself on the page, like a little bit of your soul and your mind and your heart. That's not the case in math. Like if you don't know what two times three is and you put seven, that's not exposing something personal and deep about yourself. That's just you haven't mastered that calculation yet. And if you can't describe the difference between communism and socialism, again, it, it's not exposing anything personal. It's just exposing some knowledge that you lack that you can easily attain. But when we write, we, we, we bleed on the page. We, we open up our heart and say, here is who we are. Even if you're writing about why video games are good or not, you're still opening up your heart and then people treat it like it's math or history or science instead of what it really is, which is an act of courage. And how long does it take the students in your class to get to the stage where they willingly listen to one another and they're not kind of just saying, oh, here's so-and-so, you're going on again. How do, you, how do they actually become aware of an audience and, and draw in that audience? How, how do you help them navigate that? I think primarily it's through modeling, to be honest. My enthusiasm and excitement for it is probably infectious. And the attention, the notoriety, and the sort of the celebration that writers receive in my classroom or storytellers on our stage. I actually have a stage built into my classroom with a sound system and lighting. It's really great. So whether you're standing on the stage or we're reading your work or you're reading it to us, it's always a celebratory moment. It is pencils down. It is eyes on the reader. It is, uh, it's reactions from me and then eventually from, from the class. You know, they start to realize, like, it's okay to laugh if someone writes something funny. In the middle of it, it's okay to laugh, you know, which is weird because in other classrooms, like, those auditory responses are often quenched, you know, like, shh, be quiet, he's reading. And I think, no, he wrote something hilarious. Let's all make him stop we're laughing so much. Let's have a laugh break, you know? Or we actually have moments where kids applaud, like they just burst into applause in the midst of writing. They take that from me. I burst in applause, you know? Uh, I stand up on my desk when I get excited. I, you know, I, I'm not allowed to do this anymore, but I used to pick kids up, you know, and I'd put them up on a desk or I'd put them on my shoulders. My new principal came in one day. He said, what are you doing? 
And I said, oh, no, it's okay. I pick up kids all the time. And he's like, no, you don't. You can't. So I, I don't pick up kids anymore. But I just get so enthusiastic and excited, no matter what they're doing, you know, whether they've written three sentences or written 300 sentences. I think by modeling it to other kids, that gets them excited about it. You let slip there that in your classroom you have a stage and a sound system and I don't know if you think you said lights as well, but yeah. as, if, as if that's something routine and normal, uh, which I think is probably not particularly. Can you describe, give us a visual image in, in, through audio uh, of your classroom and then maybe explain why the stage is there and how you use it? <laughs> well, the stage is there for two reasons. The not real reason, but it is important as I play the long game. I discovered that teachers get moved around in their classrooms all the time. And I realized that if I created some sort of physical structure that was immovable in my classroom, then they would not be able to move me. And that's why I've been in my classroom for 18 years out of my 21. Once you weld lighting to the girder above your, you know, above your classroom and you install sound and a stage, they, they just can't move you anymore. So that's, that's one thing. I play the long game. You know, I wanted a place where kids would genuinely feel celebrated. And I teach Shakespeare to my students too. And we perform a Shakespearean production at the end of every year. And so I did it starting my first year teaching, sort of by accident. And for the first three years, I used the stage in our auditorium. And I discovered that little voices don't carry very far. So it's very hard to hear. So I had to move the, the, the audiences onto the stage with my students rather than having them in the auditorium. And then I discovered it's hard to get the stage. Like I had to book it for rehearsals and it was just inconvenient. So I decided I'm gonna build my classroom into a theater so I don't have to use other people's theaters. But it, you know, it wasn't much. It's, it's risers that are stretched across one half of my classroom that form the stage. I, I bought curtains that had to get sort of fire tested by the uh, fire department because you know it's real stage curtaining that hangs from the ceiling. and that wraps around the edge of the risers. So you sort of can't see under your risers. It looks like a stage. I have a sound system now so that there's a microphone on the stage. So when kids speak, they're speaking into a microphone. And then I wired that lighting system. I, I had that lighting system welded into the girder above the stage. So it's a fully sort of functional stage. Now it's hard for an audience. You know, I get about a hundred parents at the end of the year come in to watch our final production of Shakespeare. And fitting 100 parents in the classroom is really challenging. And it's usually in June. So it's about 110 degrees. And the parents suffer. But I kind of don't care. I'd rather have them just sitting on top of each other. Because it affords me all of these opportunities. And it gets me to throw kids on the stage all the time. Whether we're, we're doing math and some kid has come up with a really great way to solve a problem. I'll say, go stand on the stage and tell everybody about that. Because that's, that's stage worthy, that, that one. So yeah. But I always say, whatever your passion is you should bring it to the classroom. You know, my wife's passion was not theater and storytelling, but she's a teacher and her passion is design. So when she was teaching in my school and our principal afforded us this opportunity, she created something called Green Ink. Her, her maiden name was Green. And it was a design studio where she taught kids how to uh, use Photoshop. And they started by Photoshopping their own things, but eventually they built a business where first teachers would come to her classroom and it, with requests, like I need a poster for this. And she taught the kids how to sit down with clients and discuss their design needs. And they created a form to fill out and they would design it. And then she actually had outside businesses that were paying her classroom to create Photoshop productions for their businesses. So it's just, it's whatever you love and care about, I believe you should take to the classroom. Now I know not everyone has that opportunity. I had an extraordinary principal who believed in that greatly and it changed my career in many ways. But if, you, if you're an educator, you should be trying to find a way to do that, I believe. And even from a practical point of view, how big is your classroom and how big is the stage? Everyone walks into my classroom and says that I have the biggest room because they see the stage. And it's actually the smallest room in the school. I lose like a, a bit of my room to the server, to the, to the computer. It's housed in this little spot where I, I lose a wedge. It's not very big. It's the, you know, it's an average classroom. It's probably, maybe 25 feet long and 20 feet wide. You know, it's, it's your average classroom. It's not big in any way whatsoever. It's a, it's a really average classroom. About a third of it is taken up by the stage. And then the other two thirds is taken up by desks and my desk and things like that. Yeah, so it's a little you, cramped. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It must be a little bit cramped, yeah. It is, it's a little cramped, but we use the stage as a workspace too. 
So, you know, when it's time to do work, um, you know, six kids can comfortably sit in a circle on the stage and still have lots and lots of room. And so, you know, we don't stay in our desks very often. We're often up and about and doing things. So it is a little, uh, it's a little cramped. I walk into some of my colleagues' classrooms and I go, God, it's so roomy in here without a stage. But I would never not have the stage. It would just, you know, it's not, it's not for me. <laughs> and you mentioned that you do a Shakespearean play every year, but these are fifth graders. So what, what plays do you do? And do you use the, an abridged version or do you use the actual text? So I use an abridged version of the actual text. So we're using real, real words, but to a lesser degree. I started in second grade, actually, my first year. So I was teaching seven-year-olds. It was by accident. I couldn't get my seven-year-olds, my first class, to be quiet. I had the worst class. And I was sort of, uh, my, my colleagues, uh, they purposefully gave me a terrible class. They had heard some things about me. They were not that enthusiastic about another man coming to elementary school. And they acknowledged it eventually. They said, yeah, we gave you the worst kids. And I couldn't get them to be quiet. And in November, I'm, I'm an English major, so I know Shakespeare. In November, I just couldn't stand it anymore. I stood up on a chair one day and I said, friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ears. Just in another attempt to get them to shut up, basically. And this little girl named Elizabeth looked up and she said, what's that? And I said, oh, that's a line from a play, Julius Caesar. And she said, what happens in Julius Caesar? And I said, oh, you know what? All of his friends stab him at the same time to murder him because he's in danger of becoming an emperor of a kingdom. And that was the first moment all year that the kids were quiet because all the boys were like, what? Somebody got stabbed 13 times. And I ultimately told them the story from heart. You know, I didn't read it to them. I didn't have it at the time. I just said, well, come gather around me and I'll tell you the story of Julius Caesar. It was the most attentive they had ever been. And at the end of telling that story, Elizabeth said to me, she said, can we do that play? And I thought, no. I'm not going to teach you Shakespeare. I can't even get you to shut up. But I didn't want to be the bad guy. So I said, we'll ask the principal what he thinks about that idea, figuring he'll be the bad guy for me, not knowing he had been doing children's theater for years, was writing plays, actually would write musicals that I would star in years later. And so when he came in my room one day, as he was leaving, I said, oh, by the way, the kids want to do uh, Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. I sort of told them the story and they want to do the play now. What do you think of that? And he said, I think that's a great idea. And five minutes later, he was in my room with a book by Albert Cullum, which was abridged Shakespearean plays, and Julius Caesar was in it. And he said, I'll help you, and we'll make this happen. And so I went kicking and screaming the whole way. I did not want to do it, but now I became the guy who's done it every year. So we've done, we've done all the big plays. I've done all of them about twice now. I haven't repeated a play more than twice. But the year that actually that year of that first class when Elizabeth, when she was a senior getting ready to graduate, I repeated Julius Caesar for the first time. And the night of the big performance, six of the kids from that original cast, when they were in second grade, they came to the performance without telling me. And they sat in the front row and, and Elizabeth was right there. And it was just amazing. I walked out on the stage and I looked down and I saw these kids, you know, who I knew when they were seven and now they're adults. And um, it took me a long time to collect myself to, to introduce the show. It was just beautiful. Sounds like that. What, what's a typical day like in your classroom? Uh, I mean, I don't think it's very different than, than most classrooms. You, we, we start with a morning meeting for about half an hour. We talk about how our days were. I do a lot of modeling. So I talk about what my day was like the previous day, highlighting all the things I want them to be doing. So I tell them how I exercised and how I ate some vegetables. I tell them what I'm reading. We respond. I teach, I teach sign language to the kids. So they become pretty fluent by the end of the year. You know, we go through that. We share stories. And, you know, then we teach reading and math. The end of the day is always writing. It's a solid hour and a half. And, you know, it's always 10 to 15 minutes of me teaching a lesson. And then half an hour to 45 minutes of silence in the room while we write. And then it's sharing and conferencing and partner writing and illustrating what we've been writing, those kinds of things. But it's a it's a average classroom. You know, I, I rely a lot on humor. I, I do a lot of, uh, I believe as a teacher that we have to engage kids in every single thing that we do. I think one of the tricky things about education is most people become teachers because they love school. And so then they go to school and they assume that the kids are just like them. I did not like school. I hated school. I hold the record for the most number of detentions consecutively in my high school. And so when I come to teaching, I always think I have to teach to the kids who don't want to be in class. 
I ignore the ones who want to be there. Like I don't have to hook them. Like they're there and they're, they're happy. So I have to find a way to excite the kid who wants to be in my classroom the least. And so that means no matter what, when I'm working with a cooperating teacher, I always say, what's, what's going to make the person want to learn today? You know, what's going to make these kids want to learn? And they're never taught that in college. They say like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, nobody wants to learn. Let's pretend that everybody hates school and nobody wants to learn. That's the approach you have to take to every lesson. And they're sort of dumbfounded by that. So I teach them like, it can be as simple as choice. It can simply be, you get to work with whoever you want today. That's enough for a lot of kids to be excited. You know, or it could be, I want them to do five math problems today. So I put 20 math problems on the page and I tell them they can do any five that they want. And suddenly they're thrilled because they get to ignore 15 and do five, which is what I wanted them to do be to begin with, but they feel like they're winning. And so they're excited that they, you know, skip 15. But it can also be things like when I'm giving a spelling test, rather than just reading words, I read the word and then I create a sentence to go along with the word. And the sentence is either like uh, an incredibly amusing insult about one of the kids in my class and they're excited about hearing them, or I construct these really complex stories using the 20 spelling words as I go through the, the list. So spelling becomes a really popular thing in my class. They love it because it's just a time to laugh. Then I set the rule that you're not allowed to laugh but I try to say funny things that will make you laugh and that's great for them. So competition is appealing to kids, but throughout the day, no matter what I'm doing, I'm ideally trying to get kids excited about learning. And I never assume that anyone wants to be in school on any given day. And how do you go about preparing for teaching? Well, after 21 years, I don't have to prepare like I used to, to be honest with you. It's a much easier gig for me now than it was back then. You know, I used to go in at five in the morning and every day and I would leave at five at night. So it was a 12 hour day. It's a lot easier for me now. You know, I work extremely collaboratively with my team. I immediately recognize what my skills and weaknesses are. So I am not a detail oriented person. So if you want sort of a, if you want an assignment created or curriculum written, I am not your guy. Do not ask me to do any of those things. I'm a very much a big picture person. So I like to sort of envision what a unit will look like and outline the various steps. But when it comes to actually writing the unit, I am going to be a miserable soul when it, in that regard. You know, I, I'm the person in school who teachers come to with all their problems. You know, I have, I sit at my desk every morning and I sort of start typing up my morning message and I put a chair next to me. And I started putting the chair because every day it's like a, it's a line of people who would come in and ask me to solve their problems, personal and professional. And they would end up standing and I would be sitting and it got uncomfortable for me, you know? So eventually I just started putting a chair there. So people just come and sit. My new principal, he's been with me for like three years now. I love the guy. He comes in a lot and he, with problems. And he said to me one day, he goes, it's so convenient you have this chair here all the time. And I said, it's here for you. Like it's not, nor I'm gonna move it when I'm done here, but it's here for you. So my preparation tends to be a lot of sort of, um, it tends to be a lot of leaning on my colleagues who are excellent at certain things and supporting them wherever I can. But you know, I get in about an hour before school starts and I tend to work really hard during the day. You know, while many of my colleagues will be found chatting in the hallways when their kids are off doing things, you will never find me chatting in a hallway. You know, I'm famous in my school for walking faster than everybody and constantly sort of have my head down and I eat my lunch. It's a bowl of oatmeal every single day and I eat it while I'm working because ultimately I really want to leave school at about 3.30, 3.45 at the end of the day and go off and exercise and then be with my family. So I, I make those kinds of decisions. But after 21 years, a lot of it is, I know how to teach this lesson. I know how to teach fractions to kids. You know, I got to just make sure that the material's there and I look at my colleague and I say, do you have a good practice sheet today? She says, yes, here you go. Can you punish this kid for me? And I say, yes, I'm really good at punishing kids. I will punish the kid in exchange for the homework assignment. And um, it's not that bad of a gig anymore. And when you talk about working with a team, are they the other fifth grade teachers? Yes, usually, although I tend to create strong bonds across all the grades. You know, Ideally, I identify the people who are most effective or most uh, likable or the ones who fill the gaps that I happen to uh, know that I have. And so there's three fifth grade teachers right now. So I've got those two friends, Both all of us started basically the same time 21 years ago. So we're sort of the veteran team. We really know each other well and we can 
anticipate each other very easily. But then there's other teachers that have sort of come onto the team and left and people I've gotten to know over the years. So I, I lean on a lot of people. I'm a big believer in uh, finding people to help you wherever you can and then offering whatever you have in return. You talked about uh, exchanging a, a practice sheet for punishing a child. Can you say a little bit about your approach to behavior management in general in your classroom? Well, <laughs> I tend to not have enormous behavioral problems in the class, you know, and I know some people will say it's because you have a loud voice and you can frighten children. And there is a certain degree, I think, to that. I genuinely think if kids are happy and engaged, they don't misbehave. And so if they're laughing during spelling tests and they're getting to choose which friend to work with and they're, and they're doing five out of the 20 problems, happy children are just kind of a lot easier to manage. So affording kids, you know, enjoyment is a great way to do it. When we were planning our um, mission statement years ago, the school like wasted three days of time and money trying to decide what our mission statement statement would be. And I was on the committee because I'm a writer. They said, well, you'll ultimately write it. I proposed that the word fun be in it. I said, we need to be a safe, productive. And I said, fun. And they all thought I was kidding. And then they thought it was stupid. And then they sent me to the room to write the mission statement based upon the feedback I had gotten. I put the word fun in the mission statement. I brought it back out and they immediately took it out. And I thought, you just don't understand education. Because if the classroom is fun, you really don't have that many behavioral problems. But when I have them, I believe in consequences. I believe in immediate consequences. I believe in an enormous variety of consequences. I like to match the consequence to the kid and to the action that has happened. So, you know, um, a couple of years ago, I had a, a, a girl in my class who couldn't stand her older sister. Every day I'd hear how terrible her older sister was. And then she sort of did this really rotten thing that needed a consequence. And so her consequence was she had to go home that week and write 100 compliments about her older sister in perfect uh, grammar, punctuation, and capitalization. And every compliment had to be different and it needed to be in on Friday or there would be a, another horrible consequence instead. And her mother said it was torture. She said it was just the worst thing she'd ever had to do. And I said, that's perfect, that's excellent. And, you know, then when it was done, she found it kind of amusing too, and the class laughed about it, and it's very memorable. So, you know, I, I'm, I like to try to create consequences, you know, repercussions that are sort of natural extensions of the behavior. And also of knowing the children themselves very well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is true that I, you know, when you're, when you're a man amongst you know, a, a building full of very lovely ladies. It's, you can be a little more threatening. You know, I've had, I had a kindergarten teacher a few years ago call me and say, I'm sending three kids down to your class. Can you just please make them cry? They just deserve to cry a little. And so I said, okay. So they came down and I, I said, who do you think you are? And two of them started crying right away. And the third one didn't cry. And, you know, I, I was like, who do you think you are? You know, and I, I sort of, you know, I, I railed against him. He didn't cry. And I said, you're supposed to be crying right now. And he pretended to cry. And years later, I had that kid in my class and he was the most difficult student I've ever had in my life. The one who couldn't cry as a kindergartner became the most challenging fifth grader I've ever had. So it was not a surprise. But those are the kinds of things I'm occasionally asked to do and I'm happy to do it. <laughs> what kind of homework do you give? Oh boy, I hate homework, I gotta tell you. It's the worst, it's the dumbest thing you can ask a kid to do. I you, always thought it was dumb, but now that I have my own children, I really understand fundamentally how dumb it is and how research shows that it's not helpful, at least until middle school. It, these kids are incapable of genuinely learning. I mean, I do believe in kids reading every single night. I do believe in teaching kids to study. So most of the homework that I give is related to performance in class which kids have a hard time with in the beginning. So in other grades, they would get like a spelling packet. You know, they would study spelling words in a packet over the course of the week and have to write all these things out. And I give the kids 20 words and a spelling packet. And I say, all you have to do is you have to do well on the spelling test on Friday. And they say, what about this packet? And I said, burn it, rip it up, flush it down the toilet, or finish it if that helps you, if that's the best way for you to study. But over the course of the year, my goal is for them to learn how to study. You know, they're in fifth grade getting ready to go to middle school. And I think things like understanding how to learn is really important. So most of my homework is either going to be 
you have a test, you have to study for it. Let's teach you some study methods and you can experiment with different ones throughout the year to figure out what you are best way to study. I give them things like science projects where I give them 70 popsicle sticks and a, and a tube of glue. And I tell them to go research bridge building for the month and they build bridges out of the popsicle sticks and then we test them. So it's, you know, it's an authentic and fun thing. I run my own science fair. So part of their homework is they're, they're creating science fair experiments. And every Friday they come in and report on their progress. But it's, you know, something I like to think is meaningful and, you know, important. I assign essays. So you've got a month to write an essay, but you can write it in class or at home or some combination of the two. I don't care as long as at the end of the month you have an essay. And I give them lots of opportunities to share that essay with me throughout the month. But I allow them to dig themselves holes too. You know, so the kids that don't share their essay with me and just give it to me on the 30th day, their grades are often terrible in the beginning. And the ones who have shared it 10 times with me, their grades are usually outstanding. But that's okay because I'm teaching elementary school. These grades are not going to make any difference to anyone in the world. I want them to feel the pain of, oh, I didn't work very hard. I got a D. Wow. What happens if I do work hard? Oh, I get a B plus. Maybe I'll just start working hard again. So I do things like that. But um, I'm not a person who sends home worksheets. I'm not a person who sends home dittos and things like that. Most of my assignments are long-term. I also think that teachers are crazy when they give homework because then you have to cor correct it. Like teachers who complain about correcting things, I say the problem isn't the correcting. The problem is you're assigning too many things to correct. So stop assigning all of those things and then you'll have less to correct. So that thought process goes in there too. Is there a particular book or blog or writer about education that has inspired you or that has informed your, your practice as a teacher? Yes, Chip and Dan Heath's book, Made to Stick. It is not a teaching book uh, necessarily, but it is a teaching book. It is written presumably, I think, for business, but essentially it is these two men who have written a whole bunch of great books. I read every single thing that they write. But Made to Stick is a book about why certain messages are sticky you know, why certain commercials, advertising campaigns, political ideas are sticky and others aren't. But essentially, it's a book about how to teach. You know, it tells about how, well, when you teach through story, it's much more memorable. And when things are fun and engaging, it's much more memorable. So it gives five specific strategies. I have that book in hard copy and in audio, and I listen to it every summer to remind me of what is important when teaching the next year. So that is the best book in the world for teachers. I'm going to ask you to, to tell a story in just a moment, but before that, one of the things that slightly puzzles me, you've occasionally said on your podcast that being a good storyteller can help someone when they go for a job interview. But in a job interview, you're not going to be able to tell very long stories. So how can you use your storytelling competence to be a better interviewee? Well, I think two things, three things I'll say. First, whenever you can answer a question with a story, that's fantastic. That's a much better answer. And people will often afford you more time if you're answering in a story. And so even though you say you won't have time to tell the story, if you're actually an engaging storyteller, you'll discover that your interviews are twice as long as anyone else's interview. And that's a good thing because they will kick you out if they're sick of you. They'll just stop asking questions. But if your interview was an hour long and everybody else's was 30 minutes long, that is a great sign. So I think you're afforded a greater opportunity to answer and to show who you are as a human being if you're telling stories. But I also think when you get to be a really good storyteller, you can tell the same story in 30 seconds, one minute, three minutes, or five minutes, depending on what kind of an answer they're looking for. So if it feels like it doesn't deserve that much, you just frame that story in 30 seconds. And if you feel like, oh, they're really looking for something here or they're leaning in or, or that feeling when you go, oh God, they love me. I'm gonna tell them the five minute version and I'm gonna read them and watch them. And if I feel like I'm losing them, that five minute will cut down to three. I'll skip some things and just get to the point. So I think when you become a really good storyteller, you can flexibly adjust the time of your stories. But I think most important, the best way to get people to know you is to tell them a story that is, 100%. You know, my wife was once asked why she fell in love with me. And she was asked while I was standing next to her, which is fantastic. And I thought she was going to say something about my physique, my rugged handsomeness, you know, my humor. And she said, no, it's none of those things. And she said, we went to dinner one night before we were even dating. And uh, we knew each other a little bit, but not well. And she asked me some questions. And she said, every time I asked you a question, you told me a story about your life. 
and every story was fantastic and every story sort of showed me a side of you that I had never seen in someone before. So it was storytelling that got me the best spouse in the world. And it's what holds kids' attention, I believe. And I think in an interview, it's what gets people to get to know you. And as long as you're the kind of person they like, that's great. And if you're a horrible person, having people get to know you is not going to work well for you. But there's nothing I can do in that regard. You have to fix yourself first. So could we finish off by asking you to tell the story, Matt? Yes, I'd be happy to. There's a story I've been telling just this past month now that we're, you know, sort of in pandemic times that has been, um, I guess, useful for some people. You know, it's, it's made them feel a little bit better. So it's the story I've been, it's the story I've been rolling around at shows and things. I'm sitting at my desk on the first day of school, sort of shuffling some papers around when Jack comes up to my desk. Jack is this moppy haired 10 year old boy. I taught his sister years ago. Jack comes up to me and he points at me and he says, I'm going to be the best personal assistant you've ever had. Now, Jack has just doomed himself because it's the first day of school. And this is a degree of arrogance and hubris that I cannot accept. There's only room for this degree of arrogance from one person in my classroom every year. And it's me. I am the arrogant person. Jack will not survive in this regard. It's arrogant because I haven't even announced that there are jobs in my classroom. I haven't even announced the job of personal assistant. He's heard about it probably through his sister, but he's come up and sort of declared that he's not only going to get the job, but he's going to be the best there ever was. And that is a ridiculous statement because the best personal assistant I ever had was a boy named Michael McGinnis. Five years before Jack, Michael was extraordinary. When I hired Michael, he immediately began calling me sir whenever in the role of personal assistant and used Mr. Dix when he was in the role of student. And that alone just appeased me and made me feel so good about myself. It was a wonderful thing. But Michael had this way of sort of taking charge at the appropriate time. So I've got the stage in my classroom and underneath the stage, the fifth grade teachers store all of their materials. And one of the personal assistant's job is, you basically have to do whatever I tell you to do. Every job I don't want to do becomes the personal assistant's job. So one of the jobs is they have to climb under the stage and pull out the materials. And I don't go under there because it's dirty and there's spiders, it's frightening. So I always send the kid under. So I'm like the first week of school, I send Michael under and he immediately realizes how terrible of a job it is. So during recess, he pulls everything out from underneath the stage. He interviews all the fifth grade teachers and asks them what they're most likely going to use throughout the year. And then he creates a system where the things we're going to use the most are on the edge of the stage and the things we never use are in the middle. And then he draws a map of where everything is so that whenever we need it, he pulls it out. And I'm thinking, I should have done that 20 years ago. This kid is a brilliant kid. And he is, he's brilliant. There's a day when I put my spelling tests on my desk. And then I look back 15 minutes later and they're gone. And then I look back 15 minutes later and they're back and now they're corrected. And Michael did all of that and never saw any attention or reward. He just saw it as something he could do for me. There was a day when we were having indoor recess because it was raining and I walk over to this round table in my room and Michael is sitting with these four girls and they have cards out, playing cards, and he's teaching them to play poker. He says, that's a pocket pair. It's only fours, but a pocket pair is still a pocket pair. And as he's teaching poker, a game that I love that I'm not allowed to teach children because it would be inappropriate, but now I'm thrilled because it's being taught in my classroom by someone other than me, the principal walks in and he says, what's going on here? And I said, I think they're playing poker. And he said, you can't teach poker. And I said, I'm not teaching poker. The great Michael McGinnis is teaching poker. He was that kind of a kid. There's no way Jack Murphy is ever going to be better than Michael McGinnis at this job. In fact, he's not going to get it. But he actually manages to get it. To his credit, he has a great interview because I have an interviewing process. And he submits letters of recommendation, which has never been done before. And not from his parents, from previous teachers and classmates. I sort of can't not hire Jack, even though I don't want to hire him. And to his credit, he's pretty good. He figures out how to unjam pencil sharpeners, which is something I can't do. And so every time it jams, he sort of manages to find a way to make that happen. And he's really good at appeasing kids. So like when a sort of a flare up happens somewhere in the classroom and two kids are arguing, as I start to get up to deal with the situation, Jack has a way of sort of making that situation disappear without me having to intervene, which I love. So he's got some good qualities. 
the problem with Jack is every single day he comes to me and he says, okay, I finished that job. What can I do next? And I know what he's doing. He's just trying to become the best personal assistant by, by haranguing me every day, asking me to, to find something new for him to do. And by April, it's really annoying. Now he's just sort of become this pest, you know, who's doing a good job, but would be better off leaving me alone. And so he comes to me in April and he says, okay, what can I do now? And I said, all right, Jack, fine. I said, here's the deal. At my house in the shed in the backyard, there's a lawnmower. It's broken. It's been in the shed for three years. I would like to take that lawnmower and illegally dump it on the side of the road, but my wife won't let, let me because she's moral and I am not. I don't know what to do with it. I asked the town dump if they would take it and they said no because motor oil in it. So it's been sitting in my shed for three years and I have no idea how to get rid of it. I said, Jack, if you can get that lawnmower out of my shed, you can be the greatest personal assistant of all time. And I send him off with this absolutely impossible task. He doesn't even know where I live. So the next day he comes in, first thing, he comes over to my desk and sits down. He lays three pieces of paper out in front of me. He says, Mr. Dix, and he points, us to, the first, he points to the first page. He says, I know you don't like the phone because Jack now answers the phone for me. I don't answer it. He says, I know you don't like the phone, but if you will call this man, he will come to your house. He will pick up your lawnmower and pay you $50. And I lean in to see what is he talking about? He's gone onto Craigslist. He's gone onto Craigslist and found people who buy broken lawnmowers and refurbish them. So he says, this one requires a phone call. He points to the second one. He says, this guy, you have to text him and leave it out on your front lawn, but he will leave a check for $10 in your mailbox and come and pick it up for you. And then he points to the third one. And he says, this one is a text and I can send this text for you if you want. You just put it out on the front lawn. They pick it up. You won't make any money, but you don't have to do anything. And I look at this kid. He has just solved a problem that I have had for three years. I've been staring at a broken lawnmower unsure of what to do. And in less than 24 hours, this 10 year old boy has not only solved my problem, but made me 50 bucks in the process. And I stare at him and I think, my God, Jack Murphy, you are the greatest personal assistant that I have ever had. And when I think about the world that we live in today, this disastrous pandemic that the world is suffering and the climate crisis that we have created for our children and this frankly miserable world in so many ways that we are building and leaving to kids like Jack. There are times when I get truly despondent for my own children too, for what, what we're leaving behind. But then I think about Jack and kids like Jack who every single day, they solve impossible problems with spirit, and enthusiasm and a belief that they can do anything. And so when I get really sad about the world we're leaving for our kids, I think about Jack and I think about how, how there, there are a million Jacks in the world and they're going to do far better than we have ever done. And they're going to make the future that we should have made for them a reality for themselves. Thank you. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. I mean, that, it just helps us see students even in a different light in classrooms. Yeah, I, I'm very fond of the phrase, I, I tell teachers all the time, I like to give kids impossible tasks and support them as little as possible. And it is in those situations that kids just suddenly thrive in ways you're, you can't imagine. And that's one example of it, but I do it all the but, time. But that story is a reminder to us all, I think. So. Yeah. I really appreciate the time you've given. How can people find out more about you? Because you have fantastic resources available online. So can you give, give some of the details? Sure. If you go to matthewdix.com, you can sort of find everything. If you're listening to podcasts, um, my wife and I do a storytelling podcast. It used to be weekly. Now it is almost always weekly, but the pandemic and teaching at home has sort of altered our schedule a bit. But it's called Speak Up Storytelling. Uh, we dissect stories and um, I, I tell stories and uh, it's great. It's a lot of fun. And, uh, and people are getting a lot out of it. Actually, one of the nicest things we hear from people, I can't tell you how many couples have emailed us to tell us that listening to my wife and myself speak on the podcast and 
disagree in sort of a healthy, loving way has changed the way that they think about relationships and what they can have as a relationship. So it's really great. Ideally, we're not doing it for any of those reasons. We're doing it just to help people tell better stories. That's our goal. Mm -hmm. You can find that podcast. Um, I write novels and I have a, a, a storytelling book called Story Worthy. You can find all those on the, um, on the website and wherever you get books, you can find my books. And I'll put links to them on the, on the show notes for this episode. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It was an honor. I, it's something I love talking about, so I appreciate the opportunity. And I can strongly recommend the podcast, Speak Up Storytelling, which Matthew Dix co-presents with his wife, Alicia. Matthew Dix also writes a daily blog. And one feature I like is where he sets himself goals at the start of the year. And on the last day of each month, he reports on progress made on his goals over the previous month. Remember, if you enjoyed this episode of Inside Education, you can listen to or download hundreds of previous episodes by going to seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. You can email me with comments, suggestions or questions to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is available from online bookstores and good local libraries. Until next week, for the 400th time, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Thank you for listening.